Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Once again, that music that you just heard is our new theme song from Dan Bull, who's got lots of wonderful music on his website, itsdanbull.com, so go check that out right now. Well, actually, listen to the podcast first, then check it out. Also, another reminder that if you're enjoying this podcast, please review the podcast wherever you listen to it, and maybe share it with some friends who might like it, or with places that review podcasts. We keep seeing more and more listeners, which is great, but it would certainly be nice to share the podcast even further. Anyway, in the coming weeks, the Librarian of Congress is going to make a unilateral decision about whether or not it's legal for you to do certain things with the products that you own. Can you jailbreak your video game console or phone? Can you modify the software in the car or tractor that you bought? Can you crack DRM to make non-infringing remix videos? Or can you break DRM on software that is no longer supported in order to be able to access your own data? If it seems bizarre that one person, the Librarian of Congress, gets to decide all this, you're not alone in that belief. When the DMCA was passed back in 1998, it included Section 1201, which is often called the anti-circumvent anti-circumvention provision in that it outlawed any attempt to get around so-called technological protection measures, or TPMs, even if you're doing so for reasons that have nothing to do with copyright law or copyright infringement. This idea is so crazy that even Congress realized that it would be outlawing lots of stuff that clearly should not be outlawed, and thus it added a very weird safety valve known as the 1201 Triennial Review. Every three years, people can submit to the Copyright Office specific types of things or uses that they'd like declared exempt from the DMCA's Section 1201. The Copyright Office makes recommendations based on this, and the Librarian of Congress eventually comes down from the mountain and declares what practices are legal and which are not. And sometimes he'll even take things away, as happened three years ago when cell phone unlocking uh, went from being exempt to not exempt. And that was until there was a broad public protest about this and things sort of got fixed. The, lady, the latest triennial review results are about to come down from the mountain. So along with regular co-host Dennis Yang and Hirsch Reddy, we decided to bring in an expert guest, and that is Kyle Weens, the CEO of iFixit, a wonderful site and community that helps you repair or enhance your own technology and devices. Kyle has been heavily involved in this year's Triennial Review, directly supporting a number of the proposed classes, testifying before Congress, and also spearheading an effort to get over 40,000 people to weigh in on the process. So, Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Let's, let's start with a, a quick review here. What specific issues are you hoping that the Librarian of Congress will exempt this year? 
<laughs> well, we applied for quite a few exemptions. Uh, part of the goal this year was to show as many different problems with uh, kind of the process and show how many pro devices or products are being impacted by this anti-circumvention provision. It's, it's one line of, of text in the law, and, and it impacts pretty much every single product out there that has a microchip in it. Uh, so we weren't able to apply, you know, we just didn't have the legal time to apply for an exemption for everything. <laughs> but we did, you know, we applied for, I think, you know, we being the community as a whole, applied for over 50 different exemptions. They lumped those into 27 different classes. Uh, and those classes are everything from being able to remix, uh, remix DVDs to being able to fix cars, uh, being able to use your own 3D printer filament. Um, and some of the ones that I'm very interested in, which is unlocking phones, unlocking tablets, jailbreaking phones, jailbreaking tablets, which are four separate exemptions. Right. But do you, and just in case people don't know, do you want to explain kind of the difference between unlocking and jailbreaking? Yeah. So this is something people get confused by all the time. So how many locks are on the thing that you bought that you own? Well, quite a few, it turns out. So there's the lock that AT&T puts on it to prevent you from moving your phone over to, say, uh, T-Mobile. Uh, and AT&T does this because uh, yeah, it's a way to keep customers on their network. So it's a carrier lock. So when we talk about unlocking, we're talking about the carrier lock that locks your phone to a specific phone carrier. Jailbreaking is the lock that Apple or uh, your Samsung, the phone manufacturers, put on it, and that's to restrict you from installing any apps that you want. So with a jailbreaking phone, you can install an app that wasn't approved by Apple. Uh, with an unlocked phone, you can use it on a network that wasn't approved by AT&T. So that's kind of, they're both locks that are on your phone. Uh, my phone is both jailbreaking or jailbroken and unlocked, um, so you can circumvent one lock or the other or both. Right. And, and it's, you know, certainly worth pointing out that neither of those use cases for, you know, um, uh, unlocking or jailbreaking really have anything to do with copyright law. And yet they're both restricted in some ways by copyright law. Right. And both, neither of them really were relevant in 1998 when the DMCA was passed. Right. right. <laughs> well, and, and there have certainly been lots of things that, that weren't, <laughs> weren't relevant in, in 1998 that suddenly the Section 1201 impacts, which is why we sort of have, have to keep, keep going through this process. Right. Um, and, and that's, I mean, part of the challenge here, the number of different exemptions that we're having to apply for and go through this process and they're having hearings, you have the Copyright Office listening to hearings about whether farmers can repair their tractors or not. The, the Copyright Office has no business uh, being involved in this. They are not experts. They don't understand emissions regulations. They don't understand the challenges that farmers face. They don't have any idea how many computers are in a, in a tractor, much less how they're going to be able to decide uh, uh, you know, what, which locks you can break and which ones you can't. So this is, this is copyright creep. Uh, and, and I think the, the number of different exemptions and the number of things that we can talk about here are really reflective of the problem. Yeah, I think so. I heard somebody else refer to it as uh, copyright immigration <laughs> beyond <laughs> copyright creep, where it's just, you know, and, and, you know, and one of the things, I mean, you mentioned tractors, right, and John Deere tractors, and, and John Deere specifically weighed in on this and saying that they don't think uh, the, that the Librarian of Congress should grant this exemption uh, because it claims that it owns the software that's in your tractor, even if you bought that tractor. 
Right. So I, I dug into this a little bit. We applied for an exemption. We actually applied for two separate exemptions. We applied for one to be able to repair cars. We applied for one to be able to repair farm equipment. And some uh, students at the University of Southern California, uh, uh, I paired them up with a, with a friend of mine that's a strawberry farmer, and he walked them through the problems they were having, and so they wrote a legal brief requesting an exemption for him to be able to modify his own tractor. <laughs> and we sent that in, and then John Deere came back and said, no, absolutely not. The strawberry farmer shouldn't be able to repair his own tractor. He has to go to our dealer for that. So, so what exactly is the restriction uh that John Deere puts on people with a tractor. It's, it's clear on, on a phone what happens with a locked phone, but what are they exactly locking on the tractor and what are they preventing you from doing? Yeah, so modern equipment, any, anything with an engine now is computer controlled. The way that you can get kind of the best fuel efficiency and you can really get, get uh, uh, good clean emissions out of a vehicle is to do computer timing on the injectors in the engine. So any modern car, any modern uh, farm equipment, you know, heavy machinery, anything, has a computer in it that's controlling it. Uh, there are all kinds of, of ways that you might want to tweak that for, for, for better performance or for better fuel efficiency. And farmers spend a lot of time running tractors out in the field, so they care a lot about fuel efficiency. And there are modifications that you can make to kind of some of the settings inside of the computer of the tractor that can give you better fuel efficiency. Uh, John Deere has put locks in place so that farmers can't get at those. Uh, so they, they can't change the firmware then. So they can't change the firmware. And there are, there are some settings. They actually have touch screens inside the tractors, and they can change some settings on those. Some things the technician has to come out with his laptop, plug it in, and then he can change other settings. So the farmers don't have access to some of those kind of lower-level settings. Some of them are required for repair. Some of them are required for modification. So, so what exactly is John Deere's motivation to prevent somebody from fiddling with the and the firmware in their tractors is it i mean are they do they have some add-ons that they sell you know for money to improve the 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 sort of embedded performance or something like that like why why do they even care i mean they've made their money once they sold the tractor right right so, you would think you know, it's fascinating. There's a lot of different aspects of this. John Deere likes to think of the tractor as an iPhone. Uh, they call the tractor basically the platform, and then they sell a huge variety of implements that add on to that. All of those have sensors and signals that hook onto it. So you could have a baler that's baling hay, and it'll have a moisture sensor in it, and the moisture sensor will tie all the way into their system. Uh, so, the, and the data that, that the, the tractors are collecting as they're going through the field, like the amount of torque that it takes in one section of the field versus another actually gives you data on soil density, and that data is hugely valuable. Uh, and John Deere would prefer that they own that data and the farmers don't. Oh, so, so today when a tractor is driving and collecting that data... It's being collected on the tractor, but the farmer doesn't have access to it. It, it goes to John Correct. Deere. Correct. A lot of this, the, the, the farmer doesn't have access to it. And we have heard rumors that John Deere is actually selling that data to Monsanto. Wow. This is wow. But I don't, I don't have co co confirmation <laughs> of that. But, like, it's, it's crazy how – I mean, it all comes back to control. And this is, yeah. this is the case whether it's, whether it's a tractor or a phone. The question is who controls the device that you own? I mean and, – And that's what's so insidious about the DMCA. The, the question I have is, you know – is it kind of clear to the end customer like what they're giving up, right? So, for example, in the case in the case of a phone, like you can get a cheaper phone if it's locked by AT and T. Maybe your your phone is less expensive because you have all of these controls on it. And if you wanted to, I mean, I don't know how much a truly like a phone that without these restrictions and without this type of you know some of them are cheaper, right? So, I mean, would it? Would, for example, would a farmer want to pay more for a tractor that had kind right. of 
free reign of modifications or whatnot? Like, I mean, I don't know if I'm asking the question in the right way. Sure. Is no, it, I completely understand. Yeah. So, so the, the thing that, right. So to put this in, in perspective, these yeah. farmers, co- the, these tractors cost in the range of two to $300,000. Right. So they're already paying quite a bit. So I guess the question is, okay, you paid $200,000 for your tractor. Would you be willing to pay $225,000 mm-hmm. for a tractor that wasn't sending data off into the cloud? Maybe, but they're not given that choice right now. And, and in a market where there are relatively few competitors, uh, it's, it's very, very challenging. It's like you know, in, in right now with a phone, you know, which phone operating system do you want? You can have Android or iOS, right. and that's it. But, but are, these, are these restrictions kind of placed into the, the terms of service or whatever contract when you purchase the tractor? And, and if they're not, then are they trying to essentially kind of back end these deals with this copyright law? Is that... Is that what yeah, that, that's the impression doing? that we've been getting. We've yeah. asked the farmers if they signed any kind of agreement or if there yeah. was a click-through EULA, and, and no farmer has said, oh, yeah, I had a EULA that I signed when I, when right. I got so the that tractor. So that seems a little Yeah, and that's, and, and that's what happens is that they oftentimes they go back to just using copyright as, as a control mechanism, and because of the DMCA and, and Section 1201 and also things like statutory damages, right. they're able to really hold this over people and, right. and use the law in ways that are obviously completely unrelated to, to copyright. And, and you know, as Whereas a, if they asked people to explicitly say, hey, it's cool, this is your data, not my data, sign here, they're afraid that people wouldn't sign that. Yeah, one one they may not have even realized this right. when they did it, or yeah. you know, there's there's a whole bunch of things, and and you know, this is problematic in in multiple ways. The the tractor example is just a really clear cut one. Yeah, you know, but a, a related one is is, is with cars and sure. you know, GM. Um, you know, they weighed in similar to to John Deere, and also went against this, and and more recently. Um, the, so the Copyright Office then actually asked the EPA to weigh in on this, and I was very disappointed recently to see the, the EPA actually sided with GM and John Deere and said they don't want people messing with the software in their cars. Um, and you know they, you know their point is around if people change the software, what is it going to do for emissions and, and things like that? And I understand that point, but that is not copyright's right. job. And right. if that's really their concern, you, you still have to smog check your car in many in many states, right? right. So, and in fact, right. in the letter that the EPA sent, they specifically said, you know, we have these laws, these environmental laws in place right now, and you know, we're trying to enforce them. It's like, well, you have those laws; you shouldn't right. have to rely on, on this totally on copyright, un, on, on <laughs> copyright to yeah. to to handle like questions about emissions. There are also a number of products that are exempted from the EPA emissions mm-hmm. uh, standards. So like race cars mm. are something where – so in order to buy build a racing bike, the first thing that you do is you go out and you buy an off-the-shelf, top-of-the-line Honda, and then you completely pull it apart and you reprogram the whole thing. And maybe you're building a custom ECU for it. Maybe you're modifying the, the stock ECU. But there are changes that you're making to the system that have nothing to do with emissions. We've kind of made a contract where we say we don't care that much about emissions on race cars. There aren't that many of them. Right. Uh, but the EPA just clearly didn't understand what they were doing when they sent this letter. Uh, and, and I think that this is maybe an opportunity for, for some d- digital policy folks to, to go into some of these agencies and do some education. Because they're, 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 you, you're right, it's a double jeopardy and they're using the wrong tool for the job. So, so theoretically, I may or may not have reprogrammed my, the ECU on my car. <laughs> If I were to have done that, <laughs> hypothetically, hypothetically, would I be infringing upon something right now? I, I think, well, it depends on the car. So, so yeah. most cars, no. 
Um, some cars, yes. So Volvo is encrypting the ECU. The ECU is the central computer. So in order to reflash or reprogram the ECU on modern Volvos, you do have to bypass a circumvention measure. On other cars, you don't. It really is hmm. a case-by-case -case basis. So the exemption is kind of blanket and says no matter what uh, sorts of controls they're putting on it, we want to be able to uh, bypass it. And there's also the legal question of what rises to the level of a circumvention measure, anti-circumvention measure, right? Like is yeah, it, right. it's just having a little uh, glued top on top of the um, programming port, and is that considered a... Uh, yeah. Anti-circumvention measure. I mean, you just <laughs> you just popping it off. Did you just circumvent it? Yeah. How technological yeah. is the glue? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And there are all sorts of questions. And there have been some lawsuits around this. And and there were things with like, um, you know, printer cartridges and garage door openers, where for the most part the courts have actually gotten it right and basically said like, you know, you can't use copyright law to protect, you know, against competition in garage door openers. Right. Um, right. But you know, it, it's still a weird process. And so that actually brings me to kind of the next, the next line of questioning, which is just, you know, we've been talking very specifically about this particular triennial review, but what, what are your thoughts on, on this whole tri triennial review concept and process in the first place? Yeah, well, I think that the cell phone unlocking situation really shows how broken it all is. Yeah, I mean, like what... Yeah, so the, the um, sorry, I'm, I'm going to wait for that <laughs> motorcycle. It's okay. That motorcycle is completely stock. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there I think that no the cell phone unlocking situation really shows how broken the whole process is because we, uh, we lost a freedom that everyone agrees that we should have because AT&T went to the copyright office and was able to lobby them behind closed doors and get them to uh, get them to reject the exemption. The idea that every three years we have to go and ask for a freedom and prove it de novo for every single type of product out there is preposterous. Uh, and the way that they are categorizing devices is ridiculous. They're saying that, that cell phones and tablets are different things. So uh, for the purposes of the review process, we had to prove the same case twice for unlocking cell phones and unlocking tablets. But then we applied separately for cars and tractors, and they're saying that for the purposes of the review, cars and tractors are the same thing. So looking at them, it sure seems to me like a smartphone and a tablet are the exact same thing, and a car and a tractor are very different things. Uh, and they're just being completely ad hoc and inconsistent. Uh, and, and I think it just shows how, how ludicrous the whole process is. You, you know what it smells like? What it smells like is every once in a while an administrative law will change or, or some new legislation will drop and some obscure part of the government will be given uh, a new responsibility. And that responsibility will be hugely disproportionate to its former responsibilities in terms of what kind of effect it can now have on the economy. And frankly speaking, the people that will be in that government department might not be equipped to sort of, uh, in terms of skills or like uh, what they were prepared to do, honestly, for, for their sort of job, to yes. consider the wider economy and large portions of it and think strategically about technology and all these other kinds of things. And it seems like, you know, that is probably what happened. I mean, the, the Copyright Office's responsibilities prior to the DMCA, I mean, what were they? I mean, what were they? I mean, <laughs> honestly, I mean... Can you even think? I mean, they registered works. I mean, what else did they do? I mean, right, I mean, <laughs> right, yeah. And now all of a sudden, and you have people that are making technology decisions that just really don't understand them. Uh, it was fascinating when we 
we uh, when they put up the the public comment form, uh, they had a drop down that was which which exemption do you want to comment on? Select between one and twenty seven, and they didn't have them labeled. So if you <laughs> wanted to comment on the car exemption, which is twenty one, there's no way to know that unless you download their PDF and you cross reference the PDF to the drop down in the form. Oh my god! <laughs> and then you had to download it's the Word document template and then upload the Word document template to the form that you selected twenty one on and then submit it. So we looked at this and we said, this is, this is the worst possible interface. It was almost like they were being malicious in how <laughs> difficult they were making. But I, but I swear to you, I, I really believe they were not being malicious. Just it was incompetence. This, incompetence, yes. Okay. So, is so that, we is were, that better? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. Probably not in this, in this situation. So I said, okay, we're going to make a better form for them. So we went ahead and we, we made a new kind of pretty form where you could click through and you could click on car repair and then you could type your little comment and... And so those all went into our server, and then the day before uh, you know, the deadline, we started uploading our forms to their servers. And we were doing like one a second or so. And after about ha a couple hours of that, we got this panicked phone call where they said, stop, stop, you crashed our email server. <laughs> and we're like, wait a second, what, oh, what no. email server? <laughs> <laughs> And, and it, it turns out that the way that the form was working, it was taking the Word document, it was attaching it to an email, and it was sending it to oh them. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. my God. And probably somewhere there was a machine printing them out or something. <laughs> <laughs> and something. And so they said that if you send in this many, we have to have an intern go and open every oh single email and drag the Word document into a folder. <laughs> and, well, we got 44,000 comments. So you can imagine <laughs> that this is a fair amount of work. <laughs> So I said, well, is there a format that you would prefer it in? And they said, sure. How about a PDF? And so we sent them a 44,000-page PDF. Oh, my gosh. You, you know what the thing is? Is like if you think about this, that whole system that, you know, I guarantee you somebody probably bid $100 million to build that system. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, it's notable that this is the, the same. So it's, you know, it's the, the Copyright Office, um, which for a couple of weeks hasn't been able to uh, accept new copyright registrations online because their entire system has been down because you know it, it's controlled by the Librarian of Congress and their technological system was supposed to undergo an upgrade that apparently took down the whole system for weeks. And so, and these are the people who are deciding what technologies are going to be allowed and what which are not. And that seems really problematic. And in fact, actually, I don't even know if the Copyright Office online registration has come back up yet. I don't know. I, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't checked in, in a little while. But uh, you know, as of I think last week, it had been down for for an entire week already. It's okay. No, no new works have been made in the past <laughs> week, so it's all good. Well, one of the funniest things about these kinds of uh, uh, you know having uh, these administrative guys, you know, lifelong bureaucrats, sort of deciding these things about you know uh, very specific and nuanced technological issues is. Sometimes you hear them uh, talking on C-SPAN or you know a, a congressional hearing or something like that, and you can just tell that the person speaking has no idea what he's <laughs> talking about, and that he's been carefully briefed by some underling or maybe even someone in the private sector, because they will, as you're giving the uh, their their testimony, they will carefully articulate every syllable of some word <laughs> that anybody in the industry would just kind of slurp over, right? Like, for example, right. end user licensing agreement. We all here, we would call it that a EULA, right? Right. But he will but call it... spell out. Yeah, the E-U-L-A. <laughs> like, you know, carefully. And you're like, this dude has never said that word before in his life and doesn't know what it is. He's just yeah. reading it off a of paper. Uh, That's incredible. So... Um, I, well, and, and this, this manifests because now they have to be experts in, in so many different areas. I mean, I have been studying engine hardware for a long time. I've been studying low-level uh, 
you know, phone unlocking and, and the firmware involved and the security vulnerabilities you have to exploit to be able to do it. I have a degree in computer science, and I would say by no means am I close enough to be able to be an expert across all of these different exemption classes. And yet, and yet, <laughs> we we expect uh, the, we expect the, them to be able to do it. The, the Librarian of Congress, who has already shown to have problems with technology, right. to be able to understand right. all these things and make decisions about what kinds of innovations are going to be allowed and which ones are, are forbidden. That just seems wrong. Well, to be to be you know to play our devil's advocate on okay. that on that point, um, I think the expertise they need to make the decision correctly, uh, insofar as they're given the you know, assuming that they are given the power, is they just need they need to think about it in terms of the pros and cons economically, right? For for for, for citizens and for for companies in terms of like what's going to be that that's the kind of pros and cons they got to weigh. They don't yeah, necessarily but, need to but, know the I mean, nitty gritty. Just, but, just, but think about think about what you just said for a second, right? You're you're basically arguing that we want bureaucrats to be able to weigh the pros and cons of certain kinds of innovation. That. That no, whole no, no, concept worries me. No, no, right? I, as it does worry me. But, but I mean, I'm presupposing that that's the system that you have, right? Like, ideally, you don't have that, right? Ideally, yeah, you, you don't because, have the government. But the, the problem is, though, I, you know, I, and I think going back to Kyle's point that, you know, understanding the ins and outs is is really complicated. So you can say like, okay, yeah, you can have two sides weigh in, and the, these guys are going to give me the pros, and these guys are going to give me the cons, and I'm going to weigh them out. But all of that still presupposes that, that even those two sides fully understand the innovation that's going to come out of this, right? And, and they don't, right? Even, right. You know, even the people who are studying this thing, they just know, you know, the people who are asking for exemptions, generally speaking, this is a, sort of a generalization here, but they know that when these things are allowed, that, that good innovations, good consumer innovations tend to come out of it. And that's why they're asking for these things. And it's often difficult to make that point because those innovations haven't happened yet. So you can say, yes, we want to modify tractor software. And then the other side says, you know, you don't need that. What, create, what kind of innovative thing are you going to do? And the answer is, well, we don't know yet. And so right. how, do you, how do you make that, that argument? You know, it, it's, it's the same argument that always comes up in, in the world of innovation, which is it, it's very tough to explain the innovations you don't have yet. No, I mean, so, so one innovation that we do have is a company called Farmobile, where they are taking the they, they built a little cellular box that plugs into the debug port on the tractor, mm -hmm. uh, and they actually sent in comments on the twelve hundred one process and said, "Look, like we're a small startup, but look at the amazing things that we're able to do. But we're limited in how far into the tractor we can go." Uh, but I can imagine an entire app store built on top of these machines. But the question is, who's building the app store? Do you want John Deere building the app store, or do you want anybody else? And right. it's absolutely possible that you could have a billion dollars in innovation come out of this. Hmm. But it's very, very challenging to calculate that up front now looking at it. Right, right. So let me, let me shift gears as, as, uh, as we're, we're moving towards the, the close of this podcast. Do you, do you have any predictions? Do you think you have any ideas in terms of where... Um, where they're going to come down on, on this particular round, do, and, and related to that, do you think that the the mess that happened, you know, three years ago with cell phone unlocking, where where the Librarian of Congress was frankly embarrassed afterwards because everyone freaked out about it, do you think that's going to have an impact as well in terms of what's going to happen this year? Yeah. So uh, my prediction is that we're going to get a cell phone unlocking exemption. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it would be tough for them to, to say no again. It would no be tough again. for them. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I really think they're going to screw this up. I think they're going <laughs> to screw it up badly. I think they're going to reject a number of very important exemptions and that there's going to be a huge outcry as a result. Uh, I, it, I see you know, you're if, an optimist. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I am optimistic in that I think that, that they're going to reject freedoms that are necessary. And in the mm-hmm. process of doing that, Congress is going to have to fix the underlying problem. So I, 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 th- I, I am kind of wondering if this isn't the last triennial review. And in the, in the process of, I mean, the, the complete mess that they've made of the whole process, the back and forth and bending the rules for some people and not others and dragging it out and requiring just an inordinate amount of evidence on things that they don't understand, uh, it's so ludicrous that Congress has to step in and do something. I, I think you're <laughs> overly optimistic. And the, one of the reasons I think it might be is because you're very close to it, and I think you probably associate with a lot of people for whom this is like a big issue. But honestly, it, to get a, a piece of legislation like that passed before, before the next triennial review comes around, that three years, that's a very short period of time. You also have to understand there's a change in administration that's going to happen, right? Right. And there's a, like a lot of mess going on there. There's going to be a and, lot of horse and, trading. And, and there's going to be no a way. new librarian of Congress next year, too. Yeah. There'll so, be a new librarian. Yeah. So, I mean, there, yeah. I, and Three years is optimistic. Like, I'm, yeah. I, I'm, certainly, <laughs> I'm certainly hopeful that, yeah, they'll, they'll you know, it'd be great if they, in some ways, if they screwed it up so bad that it causes Congress to, to really react. And, you know, I mean, this was what was funny was that, you know, Three years ago, when they when they went back on on cell phone unlocking, and then Congress, you know, everyone freaked out, and there was the White House petition, and the White House came out and said this needs to be fixed. But what was what was ridiculous and annoying, and and just frankly frustrating, was that uh, you know what the White House said was basically you have the FCC fix this. And it was like, wait, but this, this isn't a problem that was created by the FCC. This is a problem that was created by copyright law. If you want to fix it, you fix copyright law. And nobody right. had any – well, and, and actually, I'll, I'll take that back. There were, there were a couple people in Congress who said, well, maybe we should actually fix 1201. And then they freaked out because – and this is probably <laughs> our, our favorite tagline, a, a topic for another podcast – because they were worried about existing international agreements with other countries that if we changed 1201 in any way, we'd be violating certain uh, international treaties and trade agreements. And so, like, yes, it would be great if, <laughs> in some ways, if, if things got messed up so badly that Congress actually fixed 1201, but it's, it's a, a big and involved process, and that doesn't even right. mention the, the, the fact that you know, anytime we try and change copyright law in a significant way, it's, you know, a decade-long process. Um, yes. You know. But that process has started. They had hearings last yeah, year. Yeah. Yeah. had half we're, a dozen bills attempt to fix this be introduced. We're in inning one. I mean, this is, <laughs> you know, there, there have been hearings and there's been talk about the next great copyright act, but there's been absolutely no language introduced. There's been no... Right even idea of what kind of language there's been no official like this is what we're going to try and do you know well and i think we need to steer the conversation away from some grand sweeping fix sure. to copyright and on a very narrow incisive fix like like lofgren's unlocking act yeah and 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 that would be great if if 
if that could actually happen. And and, and and so I think the difference now is that you have a whole lot of groups involved that are very politically influential that haven't been involved before. I mean, yeah. you got the American Corn Growers Association on board and interested in copyright law all of a sudden, and that's never <laughs> happened before. Right. Well, actually, well, this is another story, <laughs> but uh, I'll give you the quick, which is that's not entirely true because <laughs> because there was a point about five or six years ago where the MPAA convinced the the Corn Growers Association to to very briefly sort of hint that that they they were upset about piracy on the belief that uh, because of of movie piracy fewer people would be eating popcorn, which was a, a completely ridiculous... Wow. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Less than 8% of corn grown in the United States goes to human But wouldn't you think if, if they're pirating, they're watching more movies, the movies yes, are cheaper, that was, there's going to be more exactly, popcorn. Exactly, it's like people at home still eat popcorn. <laughs> 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 but but there, was, there was a very brief, ridiculous moment. So yes, it, it, I, it just, you know, on the, on the, the purely factual standpoint... The okay, corn, all right, corn I, I stand very, corrected. <laughs> I did not know. <laughs> But but yes, uh, actually having them you know reasonably engaged in in an actual issue that that may actually have an impact on them for real, uh, yeah, that is new, and uh, and it's and it's and it's good to see that they're on the right side. Hopefully, <laughs> you know the the problem though with with a group like that, the Corn Growers Association, is they're they're they, you know them specifically, they are uh, a pretty powerful lobby group. Yeah, and they have a lot of different kinds of their fingers and a lot of different pies. I mean, they get a lot of. Um, subsidies from the federal government yeah and uh that makes them vulnerable to horse trading and i actually think when that when it comes down to the line um there's going to be some horse trading and then you know it'll be like my hands off your subsidies your hands off of my dmca anti-circumvention exemption you know like that it's going to be something like that i i I find these guys those types of industrial groups like much less reliable <laughs> partners, unless they really are. It's a, it's a core thing that, of their business that's being threatened by a law. You know, they're not going to be reliable. I think internet companies are going to be way more reliable. You know. Yeah. Well, and we got the recycling community on our side too. The Scrap Recycling Association has gotten involved and was very helpful in getting the cell phone unlocking bill passed. So there's more and more people coming on board. But I completely agree. We have to choose our friends wisely and bring as many people to the table as possible. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're we're basically out of time on this one. Um, but um, hopefully, well, I don't know what to hope for at this point. But but in a few weeks, when when the uh, the official results come out, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> hopefully they're good. I'm not quite sure what good is going to be <laughs> defined as this this case. But uh, Kyle, thank you very much for for joining us. Thank you very much for for being deeply involved in, in this process and, and for, you know, pushing for, for users to have, to have rights that have been sort of wiped out. So, um, Absolutely. We're going to keep fighting for this thing and bring it over the finish line. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Kyle. And we'll be back next week.